Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Scientific theory versus scientific law. It is important to understand the similarities and differences between a scientific theory and a scientific law. Both scientific theories and scientific laws describe something that has been observed in nature. They both require many observations and experiments, and they both must be accepted by the majority of the scientific community. However, scientific theories are not laws, and they are not treated the same as laws. Unlike a theory where evidence changes, a law will never change. In science, a theory is a widely accepted explanation supported by abundant scientific evidence. Theories are not just ideas or guesses about how something works, and theories are not just opinions about a concept. For science to prove a theory, scientists must conduct extensive tests and experiments. A theory must be supported by tremendous amounts of scientific evidence, and it must go through peer review and retesting. Even if a theory is proven, it is subject to change in the light of new evidence. This is the best way for science to evolve and change. In this way, scientists can use theories to build upon the evidence and ideas of other great minds. One good example of a theory that has evolved over time is Newtonian mechanics, first theorized by Isaac Newton in the 1600s. This theory explained the movement of objects, both on Earth and in space. Using Isaac Newton's work, Albert Einstein perfected the theory, renaming it the theory of special relativity. Einstein's new theory put a twist on the Newtonian theory, allowing us to measure objects in reference to space and time. Einstein even upgraded his special relativity theory to a more current version that we use today, the theory of general relativity. Scientific laws are different from scientific theories. A scientific law is a description of a fact that is completely accepted in the scientific community. A scientific law does not change, and if it is refuted, not only does the law become false, but all science that was based on that law also becomes false. Laws state that something in the natural world happens, but they do not necessarily explain how or why. The law of gravity, for instance, states that all objects have a force of attraction for each other. This law explains what happens, but not how it works or why. Theories attempt to explain the how and why. When trying to decide if something is a scientific law 
or scientific theory, ask yourself this question. Does it explain what happens or does it explain how and why something happens? If it explains what happens, you are talking about a law. If it explains how or why something happens, you are talking about a theory. Okay, um, the great conspiracy known as the germ theory of disease, and it is the grandest conspiracy. It's conspiracy facts, not conspiracy theory, uh, was seeded by the political forces that were backing the now infamous con artist Louis Pasteur. And there's no other way to describe him. The guy was, the guy was a snake oil salesman. Okay, so Antoine Bouchamp, uh, his contemporary, was the real guy that did the real research, had the, you know, the authentic understanding. He was a real scientist. Louis Pasteur, even during his time, his uh, contemporaries uh, recognized him as being kind of a second-rate plagiarist. Uh, so um, Bouchamp's cellular theory advocated treat the patient, not the infection. We could go, again, much deeper in this, but let's just get some ideas across. Microbes are opportunistic. And we'll talk more about that. That means if the environment is such, then they will uh, pleomorphically um, uh, change in ways to meet the demands of the ecosystem. And these microbes originate from within. We'll see that. Uh, he then concluded that microzymas, it's just his languaging rather than proteids, somatids, and so forth, were more basic to life than cells. Now, when I look under a microscope, as I've done thousands of times for many years, when I see these microzymas, uh, sorry, microzymas or proteids or somatids, and you see an abundance of them in a certain form, you know that that person is very vital and healthy. When you see um, uh, scant numbers of them and other uh, changes, uh, you know, in the blood, then you know that, uh, you know, the ecosystem is not going in the right direction. Hmm. Now, Louis Pasteur plagiarized the research of Bouchamp and mischaracterized his findings to foster the germ theory of disease. And, of course, he had the full backing of the um, predator class uh, because this, uh, you know, the medical system was... Uh, by design, uh, a major method of social engineering and control. And to this day, we see in current events that we're getting our chains pulled more than ever because many generations have been thoroughly brainwashed, especially us doctors. And there was a time, and I've shared the story, uh, you know, where I got red-pilled, we'll say, and I was about to vaccinate my kids and got exposed to some different information, did a lot of research, went through a lot of emotional turmoil, and, you know, still wasn't completely uh, sure what to do, you know, with the situation, and then just followed my intuition, lived in a lot of fear because of it. And now I look back and say, thank God. Uh, but I understand how these uh, engrams get deeply implanted uh, in our consciousness, and it's hard to get rid of them because people and institutions that we have been taught to trust tell us this is the way it is, and they have very impressive facilities and all the money in the world behind them, and we have been taught that 
doctors are gods and no different than when you're in a voodoo culture and the voodoo practitioner shakes some bones at you. If that is your belief system, you will get sick and you will possibly die because that is the power of our psyche. And now when a person in a white coat says you have, oh my God, coronavirus or cancer, well, is it any doubt that, you know, maybe our health declines from that point on? So uh, Pasteur allegedly recanted his theory at the edge of, at the end of his life, uh, stating the microbe is nothing, the train is everything. Uh, I like that story. I say allegedly because uh, there's some controversy whether yeah. that happened, but but we'll just that. throw it out there for the heck of it. Yeah. Do you have an open mind? Can you suspend judgment for a moment? Most people can't. But what if your job depends on it? What if the freedom to hug people depends on it? What if your life depends on it? Here's a new theory. First, consider that we live in a world where everything is toxic. The soil, the water, the air, our food, even our medicines are toxic. Even stress can be toxic. Now imagine that all these toxins are poisonous to us on a cellular level. Imagine that our cells have a defense and respond to this situation. Poisoned genetic material, either RNA or DNA, is packaged up and sent out of the cell in tiny balls of protein. Let's call these balls of genetic material exosomes. Let's imagine that exosomes can act as messages to alert other cells of a particular poison and so all throughout the body, more and more cells package up the poisoned material and release it. Also, at certain times of the year due to temperature cycles, humans tend to purge a high number of these poisoned genetic materials out of the body, resulting in symptoms of illness. These exosomes neither cause illness nor are they infectious, though they do appear to spread throughout the body. Now, that's exosome theory. Let's move on to the established theory of viruses. Viruses are generally regarded as not alive. They have no cellular structure and do not reproduce on their own. Though we do have trillions of them inside our bodies. They are tiny bits of genetic material, either RNA or DNA, packaged in tiny protein balls that appear to exit and enter cells. Sound familiar? We believe that some of these entities are infectious and pathogenic, transmitting amongst humans and reproducing inside our bodies, causing illness and death. So let's look at the situation for this coronavirus and compare what is happening to these two theories. Let's first consider the origin story of the coronavirus. A group of people had a respiratory illness unresolved by antibiotics, so medical officials began looking, of course, for a virus. What they eventually found under the electron microscope were small protein balls being excreted by the cell. Okay, first comparison. This would make sense in both exosome theory and virus theory. Then they searched for and found an RNA fragment that they had not seen before in some of these patients. This would make sense in both exosome theory and virus theory. Now they did not prove that they could infect somebody or an animal 
with a purified form of this so-called virus. They simply assumed that this RNA fragment was the cause of the illness they saw in some patients, and they assumed it was contagious. So do you know how the tests work? It's not a binary test, like a pregnancy test. It's called a PCR test, and it involves amplifying genetic material by doubling it in dozens of cycles until you have billions or trillions of the original molecules, and then using those results to determine if you have enough of the identified RNA fragment to be considered positive. Here's the thing. At a certain point of amplification, every single person would test positive. They use an arbitrary cutoff point where they stop doubling the material. That cutoff point is different amongst different tests for COVID-19. In fact, there were 10 different cutoff points amongst the 33 tests approved by the FDA. Seems a little strange, right? You might find it interesting that the Nobel Prize winning inventor of the test did not believe it should be used to diagnose infectious illness. And perhaps you've heard about some of the problems with the test, such as the high rate of false positives. But in any case, let's say that after 37 times of doubling a specific genetic material they found in your body, they determine that you have enough of the RNA they are looking for to be considered positive. This could make sense in both exosome theory and virus theory. But clearly there are clusters of people getting ill. Look at New York City. It must be a virus. However, if you are being poisoned by something in your environment, it's likely people near you are too. And if we commonly purge these poisons during specific times of the year, many people may have symptoms of illness all at once. This fits either theory. Now, here's where things get interesting. Let's go to the Diamond Princess cruise ship situation. Did you know that people who were bunked together for days had conflicting positive and negative tests? How could one person have this highly infectious illness but not transmit it to somebody bunking with them for days? This would make sense in exosome theory, where the balls of RNA are not contagious, but it would not make sense for virus theory, where the balls of RNA are supposed to be highly infectious. Let's take a look at the first case of transmission in Illinois. A woman traveled to Wuhan, came back, and both she and her chronically ill husband ended up testing positive. Medical authorities then tracked over 300 people who had had close contact with them to see who acquired the virus. And guess what? Zero positives. This again would make sense in exosome theory, since exosomes are not contagious. But it would not make sense for virus theory where this is supposed to be an infectious virus. In fact, do you know that there are many documented cases all around the world of patients testing positive for this RNA fragment with no relevant travel history and no known possible contact with somebody who was infected? These were people in the middle of nowhere, early on in this whole crisis, who suddenly were testing positive. This would make sense, again, in exosome theory, where the RNA is being produced as an immune response within our cells. But it would not make sense for virus theory, where you are supposed to have had contact with somebody with the virus. What about the high levels of people testing positive 
who don't get sick. In fact, 80% of people testing positive are either asymptomatic or have slight cold symptoms. Why? And this would make sense in exosome theory since the RNA fragments are not the cause of the illness. But it would not make sense for virus theory where this virus is supposed to cause the illness. Things get even stranger. Did you know that some people go from testing positive to testing negative to testing positive again in a matter of days? And that would make sense for exosome theory where perhaps the cells are simply releasing more or less of these exosomes depending on certain conditions. But it doesn't make sense in virus theory where you are supposedly infected until you have rid yourself of the virus. So which of these theories seems more likely to you? What if you heard that there are virologists who believe that viruses are actually exosomes? What if I told you that doctors and other scientific experts also believe this? Ultimately, regardless of which theory you believe in at this point, the established infectious virus theory, or the emerging theory of exosomes. How confident are you in the PCR test? Are you really interested in having your life hinge on the results you get from this potentially meaningless test? Do you want your loved ones tested? Do you want to be tested? Or shall we perhaps refuse the test? Okay, so in order to pinpoint the origin, the true origin of the great lie we're now facing, you got to go all the way back to one man. He's the face of the origin of this great lie, Louis Pasteur, the so-called father of the germ theory. All right, Louis Pasteur was just another scientist in league with the Rockefeller family, and he pushed this germ theory, which is still pushed as fact by all medical schools today and mainstream medicine today that's what everything is based on all right now terrain theory was put into play by Pasteur's rival Antoine Bechamp who says our bodies or he said our bodies express bacteria and viruses as cleaning and alarm messenger agents to other cells okay but of course, to sell drugs and vaccines, pharmaceutical-backed companies, doctors, and schools ran with Pasteur's germ theory and tried to blame every disease possible on it. We continue on here. Quote, Rockefeller medicine has always placed profit before healing. The anti-vaccine movement should change its name to the anti-Rockefeller medicine movement because it's based on Pasteur's discredited germ theory that he himself recanted on his deathbed. Bishamp was right all along. He basically said, quote, clean the fishbowl, don't vaccinate the fish, end quote. Pasteur said that the body is sterile. No, it isn't. But that claim gave the capitalists the green light to make drugs, injectables, radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery our standard health methods. So this military assault style of healing has left one in two children diagnosed with a chronic condition today. It has utterly failed 
the world, end quote. That's uh, MMT Solution Post by, at Median.com. So we move on to a Dr. Robert Young, CPT, PhD, neuropathic practitioner. And he's outspoken on this subject as well. And he says, quote, Bishamp was able to see bacteria and other nanomaterials emerge from the cell as opposed to coming from outside the cell like most people have been taught. Bishamp proposed that the environment of the body determines what can live and not live. The source of common disease is chemical poisoning, which can come in many forms, such as pesticides, herbicides, GMOs, and vaccines, all of which do not come from nature. They are produced by the military-industrial-pharmaceutical complex. The Rockefellers knew this would be an infinite source of revenue if they could convince the population of germ theory. End quote. So, basically, guys, Pasteur is the Einstein of biology and microbiology. He is the plagiarist fraud puppet, proven in documentation in many pub published books and writings out there for you to discover yourself because you're not going to rely on the media and education system at all to learn about Bichamp and this truth. So you got to search for it yourself. But he's this plagiarist fraud puppet. And he was to be dangled in front of the masses to perpetuate a death, poison, enslavement paradigm. And to pave the way, as it turns out, for their ultimate, most powerful psychological weapon in their arsenal. For this very moment, as we see it manifesting, the invisible germ boogeyman the invisible droplet monster, etc., as the foundation and premise for, quote, quote, unquote, uncontrollable, uncontainable contagions and pandemics. The final nail in the coffin for full-spectrum dominance and control, destruction of human bonding, relationships, sexual reproduction, because no touching, etc. Thus, in the end, depopulation and their final dystopian wet dream realized right all all accomplished through the fear of pandemics and germ theory based spread of disease and viruses Okay, guys, so as I usually like to do, I'm going to go ahead and read a few snippets or short reviews of the book here. This book here, Bechamp or Pasteur, a lost chapter in the history of biology, Ethel D. Hume. And, of course, links below so you can check out the rest of the, view, the reviews if you'd like. Purchase the book. Of course, I'll leave as many options as I can uh, that's available to us to acquire this book. And then we're going we're gonna to show uh, a nice little excerpt reading from our good friend Moms Against Medical Bullying. Okay, so let's go ahead and read just a few here. Brilliant. Recommend everyone to read this book. Was Pasteur the greatest con man psychopath ever to walk this earth? Yes, he was a perfect he was perfect for the elite agenda to destroy humanity with the vaccine narrative using his fake science, which still exists today. Read it. Okay, rudimentary review there. A must read book 
for the few physicians that can think outside the box of their medical training, Hume's book will challenge your thinking on the quote-unquote disease theory that has dominated American medical schools for the past century. It is very well researched and, pre and presents documentation from the Academy of Physicians, of which both Pasteur and Bishamp were members. She presents excerpts of presentations, including timelines for which both men supplied before the Academy, and one will readily see the vast differences in intelligence and integrity between these two individuals. Read and learn. Re-educate yourself with this book. Everything you were taught about germ theory and virology is wrong. Bishamp and his theory will make you rethink everything you thought you knew about germs and viruses. Fairly new review here, June 29th, 2020. Here's May 2019. Bishamp finally remembered for all of his accomplishments. This was an extremely well-done historical analysis of medical science involving these two forerunners of germ theory and infectious diseases. But perhaps for the very first time, the facts and the truth are revealed about these two men, especially the unacknowledged genius of Bichamp and how Pasteur, whose accomplishments were really quite modest, stole most of his ideas from Bichamp. One of the reasons why what's happening is happening is mostly the entire population of the, in the world, in the United States, is what I would call virologically illiterate. And I would include the doctors in that. And I say that not as a as criticism so much, because I also would count myself as being at least mostly virologically illiterate about a year ago, e even though I had actually written books about vaccines and, and childhood illnesses, which have a lot to do with viruses. Uh, a year ago, I could not have described many of the things which I can describe right now or understand right now. So I think that's why I'm risking reading a boring uh, passage from the CDC because if we really understand that, it's really shocking how sloppy the science is. And once you understand how sloppy the science is, this whole cascade of, of illusions uh, kind of comes crashing down. So Sally actually sent me this, this article today, so I'm gonna read from it. And this was from the CDC 2020 in June. And it was the, a paper that is the CDC's description of the isolation, purification, and characterization of the new coronavirus. So this is the seminal work on the paper. Now, I'm not going to go over the first part because basically, unlike what you would expect, which is, um, you know, we went over this in the book. How do you isolate, purify, and characterize the virus or any virus? And I would also point out that this was described by famous virologists in the 50s. And it was also the subject of a consensus paper in, of the Pasteur Institute in 1973. And it basically is a very simple process. You take source material like mucus 
and then you grind it up in a blender just to liberate the parts. Uh, and it's similar to making coffee. You take coffee beans and I think you grind them up. I don't drink coffee, but I've heard that. So that's the first step. The second step is you uh, put it through a filter. So you drip the liquid through the coffee uh, grounds, I guess you call them. And then you put it through a filter paper because you don't want the grounds in your coffee. So you get pure liquid uh, coffee in your cup or something like that. And that's the same thing they do. They grind it up in a blender, they put it through a filter paper, and only the liquid comes through. The liquid has things smaller than bacteria and cells, and the filter paper catches the bacteria and the fungus and the cells, and so they, those are discarded. So now you have unpurified virus, toxins, uh, and proteins and nucleic acids in this liquid part, which is called the supernate. And that's not purified. And then you put that through a density centrifuge and you spin it around and it forms bands of, you know, the one pound things go here and the two pound things go there. It's not one and two pounds, but that, they're whatever the weight is. And now you have purified virus and then you suck that band out. And then you have to look at it under an electron microscope and actually publish a picture that shows that you properly purified it. Because in science, you don't believe anybody. You don't, you don't, just because somebody says they have pure virus, you have to show a picture. And uh, that's how you isolate, purify, and demonstrate that you have pure virus. And then you can do studies with it. You can figure out what genome it has, and then you can figure out what proteins it has, and then you can spray it on an animal and see if it makes them sick. So then you can actually test it. Then you could even find out if it has a unique piece of DNA or RNA that you could do a PCR test. And what we're saying is that simple process has never been done. And in fact, so instead of that, what they're calling isolation and purification is nothing of the sort. So in these papers, if you read them carefully, they take, they took uh, material from one person, one person only, they ground it up, filtered it, and that was the so-called purified virus, which is flies in the face of every definition. And then they inoculate that onto tissue culture to, to make it grow. And they say, they, they by definition say, if it grows, that proves there was a virus. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't grow. It never grows. So they have to do things like put it in what they call minimal nutrient medium, which means they starve the tissue. And then they have to put things like gentamicin and amphotericin which are antibiotics and antifungals, and then bleach. And that breaks down the tissue so that the, quote, virus or whatever was in this unpurified liquid can actually break down the tissue. Now, you don't have no idea what part of the stuff in this supernatant actually is breaking down the tissue, nor do you know if it was just breakdown of the tissue from starving and poisoning. But here was the new revelation, and I, I will read this. So the, mostly the entire article 
the tissue they used was monkey kidney cells. And ironically, the two antibiotics that they added to the mix, the, the toxicity is nephrotoxicity. In other words, they're toxic to the kidneys. So then they say, and I'm quoting now, research has been initiated to study and respond to the SARS-CoV-2 information about cell lines and types susceptible to infection is needed. Therefore, we examine the capacity of SARS-CoV-2 to infect and replicate in several common primate and human cell lines, including human adenocarcinoma cells, human liver cells, human embryonic kidney cells, in addition to Vero E6 and Vero CCL81 cells. And then they went on a little bit, so I won't read that. And then they say, um, no, uh, each cell line was inoculated with at high multiplicity of infection and examined 24 hours post-infection. No CPE was observed in any lot cell lines except in the Vero cells. Now, what does that mess of nonsense mean? Here's the translation. The point of this part of the experiment was we know we can grow it on kidney cells. Let's see if we can grow it on human cells, right? After all, if it's a virus that's affecting humans, it should grow on human cells. So, so they take three different types of human cells, kidneys, liver, and embryo, uh, liver and, and, can't remember the third. Oh, cancer cells. Um, Meanwhile, besides the, the other thing I forgot to say is this liquid is mixed with bovine fetal proteins. <laughs> so you don't know whether that's the problem or not. Anyway. A lot of, lot of antifungals and uh, other chemicals in those bovine fetal things. Yeah, right. So there's all kinds of chemicals. And so they say, okay, we want to see if with three different human cell lines, whether this virus will will break it down, right? And what they find is no CPE, that means no cell death in any human line from this virus that's going to kill us all. Now let me unpack that again. In other words, what they were trying to prove is this virus will destroy human cells, not just kidney cells from a monkey. And what they found is there is no evidence of any cell death to any human line from this virus. And anybody reading this would say to themselves, are you kidding me? You mean this virus doesn't hurt human cells? That's what they found. And it also brings up the question, maybe the only reason that it broke down the monkey kidney cells was because you put nephrotoxic, i.e. kidney toxic substances in the brew. Again, the conclusion is that this virus, which was of course not just a virus, but the mixture that had the virus, doesn't break down human cells. We should have said then, okay, we're done. The virus doesn't hurt humans. That's the end of the story. Let's go home and be farmers and plumbers because this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense.
So that was uh, the new revelation that the point of it, even if you read the official science, they actually make the case for, for how implausible the theory that COVID-19 is caused by an imaginary coronavirus, which they can't find, have no pictures of, have not characterized, don't have the genome. In this paper, they said they found 37 base pairs out of 30,000, and the others were made by a computer. So those are the facts. And anybody who wants to dispute these, please send me other information because we can't find it. The question was asked is, do the cells they use to grow the viruses contain aborted fetal cells? Yes. Uh, so, you know, there's a common misconception amongst people who question the safety of vaccines because you hear that they, quote, add aborted fetal cells to the vaccines. And that is actually incorrect. It's not like there's some dastardly person out there who's saying, I'm gonna stick some aborted fetal cells into this vaccine and damage people. Uh, and it's interesting because if that was the case, presumably you could arrest that person or shut down their company, it would make it better. It's actually worse than that. What The reason it's worse than that is because these aren't added to um, particularly to hurt people. What's going on is they're using aborted fetal tissue in order to create the, in order to grow the virus, to create enough quote virus to make a vaccine. In other words, there's no way around using live tissue. And it could be from an aborted fetus. It could be from a monkey kidney. It could be from a cancer cell line. Interesting, when I read the 1998, I think it was, CDC uh, conference on how to get the other viruses out of vaccines, they said, well, we're thinking about using cancer lines to grow the viruses on, which means you would be injecting people and children with broken down cancer cells. And somebody in the, in the conference said, I don't think that's a good idea. Just <laughs> like, right. That doesn't sound like a good idea, injecting children with cancer cells. But the point is, the other thing they said was we can't get the other stuff out of there because this is the only way we can grow viruses. And so, so it's intrinsic to the process of making a vaccine. And that's actually worse than some nasty person putting stuff in there, which he shouldn't. Even the most well-meaning person has to put these things in there because that's the only way they can grow them. And that's our point. They're not actually growing viruses. They're breaking down tissue and broken down tissue is what's in the vaccines. And one of the things it comes from is aborted cell lines. You know, it sounds so medieval, like a witch's brew. It just sounds like the three weird sisters brewing up something yeah. on the heath. 
<laughs> you know, a uh, tail of newt and cells of fetuses. It's, it's incredible. It's just incredible that this is, this is what's really happening in those laboratories. Right. People have no idea. And that's why, you know, even not to, this gets a little controversial, but, but as most people know, I've been against the theory of the genetically modified virus thing for the simple reason that just like any virus, if there was a genetically modified virus, you would be able to find it. And it would have been isolated, characterized, and proven to cause disease. So, and just to be clear, that's not to say that I don't think there's labs all over the world trying to modify, quote, viruses. In fact, that's actually called a vaccine, is a modified virus. And they are trying to weaponize them. I also get that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is they can't make a contagious virus, engineered or not, for the simple fact that viruses aren't contagious. They can make an individual sick by injecting it in them, or they could spray it in the air, maybe, and make a lot of people individually sick, but it won't create a contagious virus because that is not the nature of viruses. So there's a big difference here. And I think that's an important point to, for people to distinguish here. We have another question coming in uh, and it kind of touches on what we've been talking or what you've been talking about. Um, so what could be causing the COVID-19 symptoms and why are there clusters of ill people if, if it's not a contagious virus? You want me to answer that, Sal? I'll start. You can. So we propose in our book that this illness, and it's we are not minimizing this illness. We're not saying this is just a bad case of the flu, or these are just uh, exaggerated numbers. That's not what we're saying. We think this is a very serious illness. Um, you know, there's definite symptoms of this illness, and they include hypoxia, uh, blood clots all over the body, uh, you know, fever and fatigue and so forth, um, fizzy feelings, um, uh, swelling of the toes, uh, very similar to, um, um, you know, niacin deficiency. And I just read something in the paper yesterday about People who've had this illness are suffering from memory losses and uh, at times it gets so bad they just one person couldn't even remember the word for toothbrush. So it's a serious illness. It affects the blood and the nervous system um, and it has aftermath and we're also seeing people nobody gets immune to this illness. They have people who've had COVID whatever it is and they get it again. So it's not something you get immune to. So what's causing it? And our theory is that this is being caused by, it's a kind of radiation sickness. It's been, it was precipitated by the rollout of 5G first in Wuhan. And I was just, there was a picture. <laughs> this is uh, this week's New Yorker. I know you can't see it, but it's a picture of um, the uh, seafood market 
where this was supposedly starting. And if you look carefully, there's all kinds of 5G antennas there. And of course, 5G antennas are supposed, are, there's kind of disguise, look like little boxes or uh, extensions to flagpoles, things like this. They're in this picture. And our contention is that this uh, moving epidemic, first Wuhan and then Northern Europe and then New York, follows right along with the rollout, the deployment of 5G, especially in people who are electrically sensitive to EMF. So that is our premise. We cite uh, copious epidemiological evidence of this uh, in our book. Uh, one thing that's very interesting is that the country that's had the most cases per person in the world is San Marino, which is a little tiny country in Italy. And that is the country in the world that's had 5G the longest. They've had the longest exposure to it. Um, but don't, I don't think anyone should take our word for it. Oh, and the other thing that we do uh, show in the book that there have been studies dating back to the 70s done in the Soviet Union uh, by the US Navy. And there's many, many others. There's hundreds of studies showing that the 5G, which is basically microwave. What it is is microwave. You know, it's not as strong as putting yourself in a microwave oven, but that's what it is, it's microwave. Uh, cause ill effects in humans and animals. Now, we shouldn't stop there here. We, we have enough epidemiological evidence, uh, enough evidence of harm to formulate this theory. This is what's causing this. And now it needs to be tested. Uh, we need to dedicate a proportion of all these billions of dollars going towards developing medicines, to developing vaccines, making test kits, et cetera, worthless test kits. We need to do some really good solid studies of what we're proposing. Uh let me also just unpack that question a little bit because you get a lot of variations on that que this question to, uh, to the person who asked it. The premise of the question, if I understood it correctly, is there's a lot of people in the same place who got sick, therefore it must be a virus. It must uh, be contagious. Or it must even be contagious. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I would just point out that there is no scientist, there is no medical doctor who knows anything about this field who would agree with that. And I just would also point out that, uh, you know, there was a 19, I guess, 45, they blew off a bomb in Hiroshima and a lot of people in the same place got sick. And I don't think there's anybody who thinks that was a virus. Now, some people say, well, if something spreads, it must be a virus which of course no scientist or epidemiologist or doctor would agree with that. And another example is in Chernobyl, they had a nuclear accident and then it spread all over Europe and nobody thinks that was a virus. So all these examples, you know, this, a bunch of people in this place got sick, a bunch of people in that place got sick. I went to a party and my daughter got sick. Aunt Bessie went to a show and then everybody there got sick. All these are what are called epidemiological observations. The function of epidemiological observations in science is to generate hypotheses about the cause, which then can be tested. And I just wanna go on record as saying, 
I agree that for COVID and for a lot of other illnesses, we, sh we have enough epidemiology observations to suggest a infectious or contagious cause. Therefore, I do agree that we should and should have and should test for microbial causes. We did that to the tune of $500 billion, and we found that's not the case. There is nothing more to do about this. We just, we simply did the science and found out there is no evidence that this is caused by a contagious virus. Therefore, you have to look for a different theory. And there have been so many times in history, I use the example of scurvy, you know, a bunch of sailors got sick one after another. They said it was contagious and they tried to quarantine them. And then somebody ate a lemon or a lime and the whole thing went away because it turns out it was vitamin C deficiency. So anybody who suggests that because you see somebody getting sick, that proves it's a virus. I mean, that is a scientifically illiterate statement. You know, in our book, Tom, we talk about the uh, Spanish flu of 1918, and a number of studies were done to prove contagion. And we talk about these in the book. And <laughs> the doctor who headed these studies, Dr. Rossino, was like the leading proponent of infectious disease in the United States. And he was going all over the world telling people to pasteurize milk and the germs were evil and so forth. So they did these studies where they took people who were sick with the flu, uh, they um, had them spit on well people, they had them breathe and cough on well people, they took their blood and put it in the blood of well people, and they couldn't make one single person sick by exposing them to sick people. So it was not contagious, even though Dr. Rossino in the papers, you can, you can sense how frustrated he is. He said, of course we know it's contagious, but we just somehow we can't show that it's contagious. Well, <laughs> you have to have a little bit of sympathy because if it wasn't contagious, what was causing this? And this was worldwide, worldwide. You couldn't, it wouldn't make sense that this was a nutrient deficiency or some kind of poison because it was worldwide. And uh, we are very indebted to Arthur Furstenberg, who points out that the 1918 flu coincided with the rollout of uh, um, radio towers uh, almost uh, you know, all at the same time at military bases. And that was all over the world. They wanted the radio to go all over the world. So uh, that explains this illness. Uh, this was a new vibration, a new environmental uh, toxin that uh, everyone was being exposed to for the first time. Now, we've adjusted to radios more or less, radio waves, and in our book, we, we present a theory of how we adjust to these things. Of course, the big question is, can we adjust to microwaves? That's different. Uh, here's a question from someone. So we've touched on uh, the viral causation of disease, but what about bacterial uh, or, quote, bacterial diseases and bacteria resistant to antibiotics? A very good example of uh, what's considered a bacterial disease is TB. Isn't that correct, Tom? 
Yeah, it's a kind of mycobacterium. So yeah, it's they, these, they get smaller and smaller. And um, we, we, we discussed this at some length in the book. Uh, one thing is that of all the people who test positive for this bacteria, only one-tenth actually exhibit symptoms, and the other people are called latent, latent. So right there, you have a clue. This isn't the bacteria, or they'd all be sick, right? Um, but there were many theories about TB, and the Weston Price um, basically considered TB to be a malformation of the lungs that went along with the malformation of the jaw and the facial bones because of poor nutrition. And it made the, the lungs would deteriorate, the lung cells would die, and then the bacteria do what they're designed to do, which is to eat up the dying tissue. Right. You know, the bottom line of that question is, it turns out that there is a, a well-recognized uh, procedure or strategy for demonstrating bacterial causation of a disease. It's, it's basically the same as for viruses with a little modification. In other words, if you have a person with the sim same symptoms, they should have the bacteria, which is obvious. And if the person is not sick, they shouldn't have the bacteria. And then you take the bacteria from the sick person and you expose in a normal way, and I mean like spray it on them or something, not inject it right into their brain because then you don't know what, what's causing what. And you should be able to make them sick. And the fact of the matter is, after we have a group of 14 doctors now, uh, well, for, some of them are doctors, some of them from MIT, from Harvard, pharmacists, you know, massage therapists, all doing research. Find us one paper that shows that they took an ice, they, have a bunch of sick people, they all have the same bacteria like strep. They took the strep out, they gave it to well people and they caused disease. And so far, none of us can find it. And that's that, just the facts. That being said, under certain conditions, bacteria will produce toxins. Yeah, that's different. And so if you have uh, sewage, um, in your streets, if you have sewage in your pipes, um, if you have uh, industrial toxins in, in your water, uh, the bacteria can, well, the toxins themselves will make you sick, but let's just say uh, sewage, the bacteria will produce toxins that can make you sick. That's, that's different. That's different. Yes. Yeah. It's different and, and it's not contagious either. It's just right. you get poisoned. But let me unpack this main question that people seem to ask, which is what about chicken pox, measles, and STDs? Uh, that's, like, uh, that's like the main thing. And I, I would agree, first of all, that these are, this is like advanced virology we're talking about here. But let's try to be systematic and unpack this based on the facts that we know about. And we go through this in the book. So uh, first of all, uh, we know that these childhood diseases, chicken pox, measles, mumps, these sort of things, 
first of all, they come and go through the eons, through the centuries. So for a certain period of time, children get chickenpox, and then they don't seem to get it anymore. And the old homeopaths called this genius epidemicus, which means there were certain diseases that are common to certain periods of time in humanity. In other words, from 1650 to 17, whatever, children went through something like measles. And then they stopped doing it for who knows what reason. There was no vaccines or anything. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, we know that children who go through chickenpox, measles, mumps, etc., are healthier for the rest of their life than children who don't. And this has been well proven. If you go to Miller's review of 400 vaccine studies, you'll find that, for instance, children who go through measles and chickenpox and mumps have less glioblastoma, that's a brain cancer, less cancer in general, less arthritis, less heart disease, less autoimmune disease. In other words, they're healthier for life. And if you somehow stop them from going through these, they have increased incidence of all these chronic diseases for the rest of their life. In other words, we know that going through that is a helpful process. Number three, we know with the case of chickenpox, which has been isolated and purified and looked at, we know that if you expose another animal or person, they don't get sick. That's just a fact. With measles, we have no evidence that there is a measles virus. In fact, as Sally has pointed out, there's a 100,000 euro prize that went through the German court system to, that would be given to anybody who could prove the existence of a measles virus. Not even that measles virus causes disease, just that it exists. And the virologist named Stefan Lenka won, and he was ordered that he didn't have to pay the, the claim. And even the person who said they could prove it had to pay the court costs. So officially now we know that there is no evidence that a measles virus even exists, let alone has been shown, shown to be the cause of this. Um, and the same with sexually transmitted diseases. It turns out we've looked and you cannot isolate a herpes virus and make somebody else sick with a sexually transmitted disease. You can, in that case, find a herpes virus. So the, the question then is, what the heck is going on? Why do you take somebody to a chickenpox party and they seem uh, at least sometimes to get chickenpox? Why has over 100 people written me and said, I was fine and then I had sex with somebody and then I got herpes? Uh, why, how is that possible? So it gets into the heart of the question, which is, first of all, we know it's not a virus. How do we know that? Because we, it's, all these have been experimentally undertaken to see, and the fact of the matter is it isn't. But there is this particle there, and that's an interesting thing. Now, there we get into a study done by Luc Montagne, who uh, was one of the Nobel Prize winners for, quote, discovering that HIV caused AIDS, even though he and Gallo admit that they've actually never seen an HIV particle from a sick person. So how they could prove it is beyond me, and I go into that a little bit. 
But anyways, in an attempt, I think, to redeem himself, he did an experiment where he took uh, DNA and he put it in a beaker of water in one part of the room. And then he put three nucleic acids that you make DNA in another beaker in a different part of the room. And then he shines a light on the first beaker, comes back the next day, and for some weird reason, the second beaker makes the exact same copy of DNA in the second beaker. And this only happens if you put water in it. In other words, there is some sort of resonance phenomena from the first beaker, because DNA, after all, is actually an antenna. That's why it's so susceptible to damage from electromagnetic radiation. And so there, what seems to be happening is the first child, so there's two reasons. First of all, the usual reason is there's a common poisoning or nutrient deficiency. So people with herpes are essentially bone broth deficient. And I've noticed that my whole career. If they're collagen deficient, the tissue breaks down, and then they have what we call herpes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you, if you have an elimination of, that we call chickenpox, which means you've been poisoned somehow that's unique to that era, could be glyphosate, could be electromagnetic fields, it's something that even could be unique to that town or that family, then you eliminate that uh, toxin through the skin in the form of viruses, and then you're better for life. And then through residence, you tell all the people in your town and in your village and whatever, there is a new toxin in town. You should do prepare yourself if you're exposed to this toxin to make the same elimination, which is called a virus. And you will also be better for life because it turns out that life is a cooperative venture, not survival of the fittest and based on random mutations and, you know, and, and natural selection. The viruses through this resonance phenomena are the way that organisms, including humans, adapt to new toxins, period. So you get a new toxin in town, you eliminate it through the skin in the form of what we call viruses. You resonate that out to the village. A lot of them go through the same phenomena. It makes you think there was some virus passed from one person to another, but that's not the case. It's, it's what I call the village sings together so they're all better off at the end of the day. And that is an exact description of exactly what you're seeing with measles, chicken pox, and the charged experience of sexually transmitted disease, when my guess is resonance is at its max. So a question on, on this subject. So I just, illnesses... I just, I, I just want to uh, interject here. So in this case, we are not calling these things viruses. Right. They look exactly like viruses. They attach to the same receptors but they, we call them exosomes. Right. They are not originating outside of the person. They are originating in the cell. They are these little antennas wrapped in a protein coating and they can move around in the cells. They can, and, and they can move around in the bloodstream. They can attach to other cells and say, hey, 
uh, this thing's coming, uh, you need to prepare. Their nature's uh, fantastic way of adjusting and communicating. And we need to explore the possibility that this is how we adjusted to radio waves. You know, we had this worldwide flu. Everybody was just pumping out exosomes and um, they were, uh, communicating this to others and others had the same toxin. And if we hadn't been giving these people too much aspirin or if they hadn't all been vaccinated mm -hmm. and stuff that a lot more of them would have recovered. Yeah. But this no was problem. nature's uh, like coordinated worldwide reaction to this new technology that was foisted on everybody. And I'm, of course, we all love radio. We wouldn't want to go back to a time when there wasn't a radio wasn't radio, but there's always, um, you know, with everything new, there's an adjustment. There's always an adjustment. So are you saying that- That's a great point. Let me, let me just say something here, because, because if we stop this from happening, A, we won't be able to adapt to new environmental influences like toxins. This is the mechanism of adaptation. And B, Typically, it only becomes a problem if you try to suppress the symptoms. And you could say the definition of conventional medicine is the people who try to suppress healing reactions. So you get a <laughs> fever, you excrete these, these uh, toxins called exosomes to help yourself. We know that. We know they can communicate. Your doctor, unfortunately, doesn't understand that, so he tries to suppress that. And then you have bad outcomes. That's the problem. So are you saying that exosomes are in fact viruses? They are one and the same thing? Is that what you're saying? They are exactly the same thing. And they're just being misunderstood or... Uh, mischaracterized. Yeah, mischaracterized yeah. by the medical establishment. Yes. The, the word virus means poison in Latin. And people like Pasteur were using this word virus uh, all the time. And they were speculating that there were things smaller than bacteria that were causing disease. And so when they actually found these tiny little things, they called them viruses because they assumed that they were poison. It's just like when they first um, discovered immune cells uh, they assumed that these were evil and that they went around the body carrying sickness to other parts of the body. The materialistic viewpoint kind of, it's just like a knee-jerk reaction. They assume that these things are bad. And it's taken us 200 years to get over the notion that bacteria are bad. Uh, now we need to do the same thing with viruses. Yeah, it's an exception. The, the, the idea of a pathogenic virus is a misconception. And it's the same misconception as maggots killed the dog, firemen make fires, and a lot of other things. Just because something is at the site of an event doesn't mean it caused the event. There's a way to figure out whether it caused the event, which is to isolate it and then expose somebody who didn't, you know, all you have to do is take a bunch of firemen and put them in a house that doesn't have a fire, wait 24 hours, and I will, uh, I will publicly say we were wrong about the book. If every time you put a new fireman at a, at a new house, 
you next day you see a fire. <laughs> I don't think it works like that. And, or you put maggots on, on your arm, living tissue. They will not eat your arm. Yeah. They will only eat uh, decayed and dying tissue. That's this whole, uh, you know, there's a therapy where they put maggots on sores that won't heal. And the maggots eat the dying tissue and they won't eat the live tissue. As soon as they run out of dead tissue, they go away. They die themselves. Right. And so are we, are we mischaracterizing what illnesses are? A question from someone asked, are illnesses then a form of detox and not contagion? Correct. Or deficiency. Right. Starving and poisoning. I think we'd have to add injury to that. Uh, starving, poisoning, and I've also added delusional. <laughs> yes, yes. Because if you think this is happening, it creates disease conditions in your body. What the this I'm referring to, if you go around walking around the world thinking the entire world is out to get you, you will create actual physiological state in your body that is, is a disease state. And it will also lead you to do, you know, ridiculous maneuvers like not being within six feet of another person, <laughs> or putting something on your face to keep you from breathing properly. All that comes from a misconception that you think the world is essentially out to get you particularly things you can't see or experience yourself. And that is a noxious way of thinking. It's a victim mentality. Exactly. And I, I read a wonderful quote the other day. So the holistic view is a view that empowers you as an individual and uh, makes you responsible for your health and the health of people in your family or whatever. But modern medicine is a victim view. We're victims of, I always say the three G's, germs, genes, and God. That's what we blame when we get sick. Oh, it's just genetic or it's germs or it's God's will. And none of that um, gives us, empowers us or gives us uh, the sense of responsibility to uh, deal with this, uh, these symptoms, whatever they are. You know, I had somebody along, along those lines said to me yesterday, uh, you know, older person and she's losing her hearing and, oh, I, I, I'm losing my hearing, it's genetic. My mother lost her hearing, my sister lost her hearing. So of course I asked her, so which gene is it? And of course she didn't know. Uh, do you know which chromosome this gene for losing your hearing when you're older, what, what gene is that? She, of course, didn't know. Uh, the point is, as far as I can see, there is no evidence of any gene that causes hearing loss in elderly people. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that until modern people, uh, you know, native people didn't have hearing loss, no matter how old they lived. And so it can't possibly be genetics. And the, the problem is if you think it's genetics, you, you are setting yourself up as, A, it wasn't all that, you know, 
sugar ice cream I ate all those years. Right? Yeah. It wasn't that I have a cell phone sleep under my pillow when I sleep, which is, you know, putting electromagnetic waves on my acoustic nerve. I mean, I had a friend who, he, he was on a, a cell phone probably 10 hours a day, the primitive ones, always used one ear and he got an acoustic neuroma, which is a tumor of that, uh, of that ear nerve in that ear. And he goes to the doctor, he says, why do I got this? He said, it's genetic. <laughs> and meanwhile, nobody else in his family or anybody he ever heard of had such a thing. I had another story of a guy uh, who ended up being put as ambassador and he was an early cell phone guy. And he also had one of these early primitive radiation emitting cell phones. He was a friend of my mother and then uh, eventually he got a brain tumor and my mother sent me the CT scan and it looked exactly like a cell phone in his temporal lobe. <laughs> I mean, he could, I could even tell the brand of cell phone from the x-ray. And again, he went to the doctor, why do I have this brain tumor? It's genetic. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it, it, how, what, what's the gene for a brain tumor that looks like a Motorola cell phone? You know, maybe there is one, but I don't know which one it is. Well, it's blaming it on some something something else and or someone else. And we need a whole new attitude towards illness. Illness is the body telling you something needs to change. You need to do something differently. You maybe need to um, stop hating someone or stop being critical of yourself or you need to eat differently or or whatever, or stop smoking, whatever it is. And, um, you know, most people would rather hear that it's genetic and then they don't have to do anything, it's not their fault. It gives them an immediate sense of relief and a lifetime of misery. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are asking about 5G and specifically about what makes a person vulnerable to 5G radiation and if there are any remediation uh, techniques or products that they can do to uh, try to reduce their exposure? Well, first thing you want to do is get out. <laughs> I mean, um, you want to reduce your exposure as much as possible. One very fortunate thing is that the 5G does not come through walls uh, or glass. They have there, it's funny, Kirkland, Washington is where this company is. It's developing ways of bringing 5G into your buildings. And of course, that's where we had this really big outbreak in the United States. So maybe they were, uh, maybe uh, that nursing home, which was a mile away from this company, uh, was being used as a test site or demonstration or whatever. Um, but I think, and I know that Tom has some thoughts on this too, um, you want to make sure your bedroom where you sleep and recover from the day. Uh, you certainly don't want 5G in there. You don't want your Wi-Fi in there. You don't want your router in there. You, if possible, you want to turn off all the electricity in your wires, like shutting down the fuses, uh, so that the place where you sleep is, is clean, that it's uh, not full of uh, radiation toxins. That, that's, I would say, number one. 
Um, I talk a lot in the book, in the chapter on food about saturated fats and how saturated fats help create really strong, um, robust cell membranes. And it's against your cell membranes that water um, um, organizes itself into structured water. And those are, that structured water acts like a wire through your body. So um, a good uh, diet of traditional foods is, is extremely important. Uh, what is uh, one, by the way, I just add, one of the things that we learned while we were doing this research was uh, from Gerald Pollack. So he does these studies where he has a, uh, a container of water and he can see at, at the edge of the container where you have a hydrophilic surface, the water has structured itself. It becomes what's called easy water. And if you put a, a router next to, next to that container of water with the structured water all around, uh, the, um, that zone of structured water decreases by 15%. So we know that these radiations affect the, the structured water in your body. And that structured water is what carries electrical charges throughout the body. And what about people in rural areas? We've heard, uh, or people are asking questions, you know, what about people in the Amazon? They seem to have very little connection with the modern and the modern world. So why are people in rural areas uh, getting sick? As far as the Amazon is concerned, right in the middle of the Amazon is a huge installation of every possible type of electromagnetic radiation emitter that you can think of. So they can basically hear a leaf drop anywhere in the Amazon. So these people are bathed in this all the time. You can always tell when a, a site, even a rural or a primitive so-called wilderness site, that's probably a better word, is exposed to electromagnetic toxicity because the trees um, essentially die from the top down and they make more resin to try to seal themselves so they stop losing the water. In other words, when you poison a tree with electromagnetic fields, it it starts losing its water and getting dehydrated. The tree doesn't want that to happen. So it puts out more, say, pine resin, which then sort of seals it and makes a protective barrier. Uh, the next thing you see is increased fires that are hotter than ever. Because that pine resin, you know, I know everybody who as a fireplace knows you can use pine resin to start fires and it's very it burns very quickly and very hot so when you start seeing you know fires in the amazon you can you know that that's because they're increasing the electrification uh, essentially evaporating the water increasing the pine resin or the resin in the trees which then burns hotter and quicker and uh, that's a telltale sign that that place has had an increased electrification. We're, we're also getting a lot of questions of, from people saying that, yes, I, I understand that, but what about all the people in areas with no pipe? 
Um, well, I live I live in such an area, and I don't know anyone who's gotten sick. I don't know a single person who's gotten sick, except um, I heard of a guy from Mexico who had gotten the bad flu, and I looked into this. I asked his friend who works for us, and he said, oh, yeah, they just put 5G in that neighborhood. The other so thing to say about that is... When people say, oh, there's so many cases or there's not, or there's no cases here or there are a lot of cases there, you have to realize, and I, and I mean this very seriously, all these people have to realize there is no such thing as a case because the PCR test to, quote, find the virus has never shown that it can find a virus. So if you say, well, there's a lot of cases what you mean is the translation of that is there's a lot of people who have a proven test, you know, the, the package insert on the Roach test says, Roach PCR test says, you cannot use this test to find or detect a virus. In other words, there is no evidence that this test is, has any relevance at all. So all these numbers that you hear about number of cases here and there are, it's completely bogus make-believe numbers. So the yeah. only thing you can, you can rely on is people who are sick in a very particular way, well-documented, and since we don't have access to that information and they haven't done autopsies on hardly anybody, Nobody actually has any idea who's getting sick with what anywhere, uh, except a very few places, which we know have, have been hot spots. And these are almost always, if not always, associated with increased electrification. I, I would also say that there are other factors. And, you know, Sally did a great job in the book of, you know, air pollution, cyanide, nutrient deficiencies, bad water, bad air, bed bugs. bed bugs. There's a lot of things that, you know, toxic insect bites. There's a lot of things that make people sick. So each situation of somebody getting sick, and I mean sick, not a testing sick, has to be investigated on its own merits. And when you do that, you invariably find certain things that shouldn't have been done or you know, certain exposures that make people sick. There was an article in the Post the other day of, of bemoaning the fact that uh, some community had real school again. The kids went back to school. And they said there was an outbreak in this school after school opened. Well, what did they mean by outbreak? They meant that two students tested positive. That's what they called an outbreak. And as Tom says, these tests are meaningless. There is actually a huge worldwide lawsuit on this. Uh, crimes against humanity by telling people they're sick when the test means nothing. And so the numbers mean nothing. We just don't know, uh, you know what these patterns are, how many people are getting sick from this or from something else. And I have to say that the health officials worldwide, the whole... Uh, profession of health of, of professionals has really let us down on this. They have been incompetent, uh, 
into a criminal extent, um, you know, you need to determine illness by symptoms and certain specific symptoms. Uh, and then, then on the other hand, we have hospitals saying that people died of this disease, COVID-19, simply because of more money, we're saying. So, whereas Tom and I are not arguing that this disease doesn't exist or it's just a bad version of the flu, we think this is a serious disease and it's gonna get worse until we come to our senses and um, look into the real causes of it. Uh, we just don't know. The, Everything we have so far is meaningless in this form of numbers. And what about the uh, flu vaccine? We've seen reports of higher instances, especially in northern Italy, uh, from people who have received the flu vaccine in the past. Is there a correlation there between uh, flu vaccine and getting COVID-19? I mean, a flu vaccine is just one of the many forms of getting poisoned. So if you get poisoned, you get sick. And one of the ways you can get sick, and especially because they have metals in there, aluminum and sometimes other metals that are in vaccines. And so these metals act also like antennas and increase your sensitivity to you know, EMF toxicity. Uh, vaccines are, are toxic. The more vaccines you get, the more likely you are to get sick including with electromagnetic field radiation sickness. And I would love to see somebody look into the possible correlation of amalgam fillings with getting this disease. One of the <laughs> very early studies on millimeter radiation, that's what 5G is. One of the symptoms was arcing between the teeth. In other words, they would have be exposed to these millimeter meter waves, 5G basically, and there would be arcs of electricity between the mercury fillings and the teeth. That's not a good thing to have happen. No. <laughs> All right. Um, we've been on for a little bit over an hour now, so yeah. I, think, I think it's time to wrap up here. So maybe Sally, if you could uh, tell people where, uh, where they can find more of your work. So my, uh, of course, the Weston A. Price Foundation, Tom and I are um, founding board members and uh, we publish a quarterly journal. I think our journal has been on the absolute forefront of providing accurate information about what's going on. And then I have a blog, nourishingtraditions.com. Um, Tom and I are actually working on a blog right now a number of people have sent us studies saying, you see, here they say they've isolated the virus, or here they've said that they've satisfied uh, hoax postulates. And so we're going to kind of dissect all of these in our next blog. So if you want to keep it, the latest information will be on my blog or on Tom's blog. So my blog is nourishingtraditions.com. And uh, you have a Facebook page as well? I do. I don't. I don't manage that page. I don't do Facebook, but I do have a Facebook page. It's, I think it's Sally Fallon author, something like that. Sally Fallon Morell on, on, oh, on Facebook. Okay. All right. And dad, do you want to tell people where they can find you? I think we're drtomcowan.com, right? That's drtomcowan.com. 
Uh, we are one of the few outlets where you can still buy the book. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of people, especially from overseas, place orders on the books. I think I know it's been uh, at least dropped from a lot of the uh, outlet uh, book selling outlets uh, overseas. And so uh, Asher, uh, if people want to get the book quickly, anywhere in the world, they can do a, a Nook book from Barnes & Noble, just like a Kindle book. Yeah, and, and we, we have, you know, we, we've heard from the publisher that Barnes & Noble is reordering, so it appears that they are not uh, censoring the book at all, so uh, that's good news. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend.